The Christian message begins with a startling lack of personal affirmation. It doesn't say to the person who is struggling to keep their head above the water and to make the best of their lives, you've got this, you can do it. No, it says, you can't do it. You're drowning and you're going to drown. But God is here to pluck you out of those waters. Welcome everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is the Bread of Life. This radio ministry is sponsored by Church Partnership Evangelism and its local missions fellowship, the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. We're working in multiple countries around the world to further the gospel, and we are available to you in your church. We will teach your people how to find their role in their communities as intercessors, and then out of that role, how to engage others in gentle and powerful dialogues in the gospel. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org or traincpe.org. Now let's go to God's Word. You can be opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 and keep them handy. Today we'll get down to the issues that we're facing in our own flesh. The stuff that we are made of has a fatal flaw in it, a weakness that will not go away for the Christian until Jesus Christ returns to rapture us unto himself, but a weakness God has an answer for in himself. We're coming to the end of this chapter in which Paul is answering a question that basically has been sounded before him twice. If you're teaching about grace and that all we need to be saved is grace, then why don't we just sin that that more grace might abound? Why don't we keep on sinning? It's asked in verse 1, it's asked again in verse 15. Uh, You might remember that Paul is writing in such a way that he's writing like he's writing a diatribe. So he's addressing different people in like a debate, an imaginary debate. He's writing to the Christians in Rome, but he's also presenting them the truths through this diatribe, this engagement of the gospel, but those who might not be willing to receive it and are protesting against things that are introduced to them as their gospel is brought before them. And so he turns to speak to the pagan. He turns to speak to the pagan moralist. He turns to speak to the Jewish religionist, Judaizer. And he also turns and speaks to the brothers and sisters that he's writing to. We see some of that in this passage here. Now we're in verse 19 as Paul is answering this question. And Paul is, by the way, spoke of this idea that we are not to be slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. And the first answer to this question I told you last week, what Paul did was he talked about a work that God had done in our life, regenerating us, in which he put to death our old man and he gave us new life in Christ. He says, we don't continue going on sinning because we've been born again. We've been transformed. And the old man that followed after that pursuit is dead. And a new man has come to life in us. And so he answers the question first by saying, this is what God has done for us. The second time he answers the question, he refers more to what we have done for God. We have turned our life over to him. We have surrendered to him. We have yielded ourselves up to him as slaves to righteousness. And so Having made that decision and laid our lives down in that way, we're not going back. That's the basic idea he puts before us in answer to the question when it's asked a second time. Now, let me read to you Romans 6, verses 19 through 23. Paul writes, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end to everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. May God add a blessing to his word 
The Lord Jesus deployed a number of various metaphors or analogies in describing the Christian life, and through these illustrative depictions, he was setting a tone of expectation and appreciation for what it was that he was going to offer those who followed him. So on one occasion, he compares the Christian life to a feast, not just any kind of feast, but a celebratory wedding feast. Not even just any kind of wedding feast, but to a royal wedding feast. And he said, now that's the Christian life. It's this great, wonderful, celebratory feast that we enjoy with him. And then on another occasion, he will speak of the life of following him like that life of sheep who are under the care of a tender and loving and guiding and protecting good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then on another occasion, he compares our life with him to that of being branches that are connected into the vitality of the fruit-producing vine. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. He spoke of the Christian life and the imagery of sick and broken people who come to a great physician who heals them and makes them whole and grants them and brings them into life. Again, it's just another wonderful picture. He gives us the picture of we're stones that are built upon him as the chief cornerstone that rises up into a great temple in which God is worshipped and glorified and God makes his presence known. These are wonderful analogies that exalt us and lift up our minds to a sense of the preciousness and dearness and wonder of the life that we have in the Lord Jesus as we follow him. Maybe in light of these analogies that are so powerful and compelling that Paul acknowledges the limitation of the analogy that he's just used of the Christian life in responding to a certain question that's been asked to him. He's actually somewhat apologetic of it. He says, I speak in human terms. I'm giving an analogy that is not as encouraging and uplifting. It certainly doesn't have the same kind of poetic flair. It certainly isn't something that lifts and exalts your heart when you consider it. I'm using the analogy of being a slave, being a slave to righteousness. So I'm bringing this down to a most common level. I'm speaking to you in the most human terms because this is something that you need to hear. I know it's not uplifting. I know it's not necessarily inspiring. But listen, it's inspired. Paul is speaking to us, being led by the Holy Spirit. And Paul explains that it is necessary for him to speak in this blunt and blatant fashion in order to address something that resides in the hearts of those that he's writing to. And if it's important for Paul to have said this to those he was writing to in Rome, Important that this analogy be applied to our lives as well. There's a reason why this analogy of being slaves is important. The question is why? Well, it's because of this, Paul says. It's because of the weakness of your flesh. Some of your translations will say it's because of the natural limitations or your human limitations. What they'll say, the answer is there. But the word there is flesh. It's sarks. It's a word that we spoke about a couple weeks ago. Throughout chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, Paul will use different terms to reference our physical bodies. He'll use the term soma for our bodies. He'll use a term for our members or the various extremities of our bodies, our hands and our feet and our tongues. Those are our members of our body. And then he'll speak of the substance in which our bodies and our members are constructed, and that's our flesh. 
in each one of these cases, when he speaks of the body, when he speaks of the members, when he speaks of the flesh, it's connected to this idea that they are prey to sinful impulses. They are prey to sinful proclivities. And so he is speaking in order to guide us as individuals who are fallen Christ, who have given new spirits, to take dominion, you might say, over our physical bodies. And also to address the temptations and the challenge that come to us through our physical bodies. And so he says here, I speak to you because of the, not your natural limitations, not your human limitations. I speak to you, and this is the word, this is actually the most faithful expression of just what the word in Greek means here, the weakness that is found in your flesh. The essence of that weakness is such that I need to speak to you in this lowly, startling analogy for the Christian life because I need to address that weakness. It needs to be confronted. It needs to be corrected. So what is that weakness? What's the weakness in the flesh that he's confronting? We have to draw this to some extent from the very words that he says here. But I think the overriding consideration at issue here that's being Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is being guided to address when he gives this analogy is, and you might put this as it, this is the weakness of the flesh. It is a proneness towards independence from God. The weakness of the flesh is a proneness towards independence from God. Paul is addressing this independent tilt away from God. Paul must overcome this, this point of resistance to the truth that rises up in our flesh, a point which our weak, sin-prone flesh pushes us, which is to push us away from God. The author of Hebrews gives this warning to those he writes in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 3.12, he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. There is this tendency or this proneness to distance ourselves from God, and we can clothe it in religious behavior. We can come offering up all kinds of righteous professions, We can embrace even some plan and strategy for moral living, and yet at the same time, when we do that on the outside and the inside, our hearts, our flesh is driving us away from God. So Isaiah says this in Isaiah 29, verse 13. He says, You draw near to me with your mouths, and with your lips you honor me, but your hearts are far from me, and your fear towards me is taught merely by the precepts of men. Now, you're doing all these outward forms and you're saying all these outward things, but your heart, your fear is artificial and your heart is far from me. It's the proneness of the heart, the human heart, to distance itself from God and to move away from God, or it's the proneness, I might say, of the flesh. There are legitimate doubts and questions that we have at times in our lives. There are legitimate doubts and questions that even the unbeliever has about what is true and what is right and what is good. But very often they reflect some tilt of sinful disposition in the flesh, in the nature of human beings that desires independence from God. We'll see this independent attitude expressed as we look further in our passage, but first let's just see that this is what Paul is addressing, and let's actually see that it's addressed in the very protest that he's trying to answer. Look, at if the law is set aside, they understand what Paul is teaching is you can't be made righteous by following all these laws and all these rules. The only way you can be righteous is by a gracious gift that God gives you, providing righteousness 
through his son, Jesus Christ. He's the one who's died in your place for your sins. He's bore the punishment for your sins. He's the one who's lived the perfectly righteous life, and you will never attain it by following the law. You just have to simply believe and trust in him and receive by grace the gift that he's giving you. And the protest that comes is a protest, well then, if we're not saved by or if we're not made righteous by the law, and if the law is put aside, then why don't we just keep on sinning that grace may abound? Paul, you're actually promoting an idea that's promoting more immorality. You're promoting lawlessness. You're untethering people from any incentive to be moral at all. And so these people that are making the protest are positioning themselves as paragons of righteousness. They're positioning themselves as the ones who are the advocates for good, strong, moral living. And maybe they have been. Maybe they've been the ones in their society that have tried to hold up the best standard and they're incensed. And bothered by the fact that Paul is suggesting that all that they're doing is of no great value to God. And hasn't accomplished any righteousness for them. And so here are these individuals that are espousing and, and seem to be putting themselves in the position of holding the need to be moral and right and good. And to have a standard that everybody lives by. Paul is basically saying that this moralistic attitude, this legalistic attitude. And by the way, it's not individuals. It's not just people who are very circumspect and trying to live moral lives that make this protest. There are people who live lives that are almost abandoned of any morality whatsoever, but put them in a corner and all of a sudden they'll protest of the one or two little trinkets of good things they do, that that has to be the thing and you're going to set the world on fire if you don't appeal to the fact that people need to be good in order to be saved. And It doesn't matter. They'll come back to that moral argument. And here's what Paul's saying. This moralistic argument, this legalistic attitude that thinks that we can gain our own right standing and approval from God by our actions is motivated by the fleshiness that wants some form of independence from God. Thanks for joining us at the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.